Hello, welcome to the 50 Minute Hour. I'm Corey, and uh, today we have quite an audience. Um, we are uh, today we're discussing um, a sort of multifarious group of topics relating primarily to political theory, political philosophy, metapolitics, um, especially um, Ivan Elin and uh, Dugin and Russian political theory, uh, and uh, maybe even some Platonism here and there, and the relationship between theology and political theory. Uh, we have our returning guest, Jonathan. Uh, we have uh, Haba, uh, our geopolitical expert. We have Calvin, the, the technician. We have uh, Mr. Bame, our uh, reincarnation of Jacob. Uh, Jakob Burma. Jakob Burma. And then we have our Russian history uh, aficionado, Garrison, with us as well. So uh, hopefully, I will say I'm, I'm woefully uh, ignorant of this. Uh, we were sponsored by an anonymous... Uh, patron to specifically do a podcast on Ivan Elin, but seeing I really do not know much about him, we're just going to make a much broader uh, inquiry into these the nature of these sort of things that he's talking about. Um, I'll begin by saying Elin is a, um, I don't even know which century he's in, 18th, 19th century guy uh, who, he was 1920th. Okay, there we go. Thank you, Garrison. And uh, he, he, uh, his his whole thing, I mean, you know, Putin has quoted him before. Some people say he influenced Dugan, but Dugan doesn't seem to explicitly talk about him. Of course, great thinkers always tend to hide their sources. And Elon's whole thing is weak theology. And that's basically this idea that God's only in control of potentiality. And when he creates Adam and Eve or the angels or whatever, free will comes into the picture and he loses control. So now he needs the Jews and Jesus and the Christian nations and Byzantine and ultimately the Omega point of Russia to bring about the will of God on, on earth, which is what justifies theologically Putin's regime. So again, the, the whole idea here being that political metaphysics or, or rather political prag, pragmatic uh, aspects of, of how, how we think about politics is never in the vacuum without theology and whether or not you're atheist or pagan or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, um, there is always some unassumed, unconscious, metaphysical, religious presuppositions that influence what politics is doing. So uh, having said that, I'll uh, open the floor. Well, I, I don't know much about this. This What's his name? Uh, Elon? Elon? Uh, I have a hard time. Elon? Uh, <laughs> I, I am I'm from here, a little north here in, in Sadieville. So I got a little redneck accent. It's difficult to say some of these foreign words. But... I know a little bit about Dugan and how I got into Dugan was that Obama banned his books. So I said, well, it's got to be something there. If, if his books are banned, I mean, it's, it's an obvious tale, you know? And Dugan, if he does indeed get his ideas from this, this guy, what, what you have is Dugan obviously lived in the Bolshevik revolution because he has a very, very beautifully nuanced view of communism. Like you can't, if you're a thinking person, you cannot refute it that they were exactly right in, in their description of the bourgeoisie and of capitalism, but they were exactly wrong in impl implementation and other elements of it and, and where they thought it was going to break out. Because I think Marx thought it was just going to happen in Western Europe and where it didn't happen at all and end up happening in developed country, developing countries. But Dugan, you know, his, his whole idea, I think, is uh, it's a really interesting idea because he, he sees, I was telling Corey before this, he sees liberalism in the general sense, like the West capitalism, this idea of constant growth as in absolute decay. And he has a hard time nuancing his views on it because he sees it like a Protestant preacher sees Satan. And he, but he tries. 
But his ideas are really interesting because he, he talks about the, the problem with liberalism. It, there's so many problems. The first problem is individuality and how that individuality gives the small man a small chance. Whereas if it was more of a collectivist view, it would give a great man with a great will a real chance. It's a solid idea. Is another problem with uh, liberalism is that it's, he sees there's no hope for it. Which, and, you, and when he breaks it down, when he sees the problems with it, you see it happening in our culture today, but the constant growth model. And that's not just growth on a material plane, growth in the spiritual plane. Like that's why you have all this social justice war. You get to this, this political correctness because like they want to be more moral, more moral, more moral, even though we've gotten rid of God. It's, it's, it's this constant growth. And he says, it's going to capitulate at some points. It's just going to, and it's going to fall into the ocean. He has no hope for America. He has no hope for the West. I mean, he almost damns America. And all of his views on liberalism couldn't be more accurate. It's, it's insane how good he is at this. And, but another thing with fascism, I thought was interesting is he has a really hard time with nuancing that. And he just chalks it up to basically, it's a, a bad variation of historical racism, which is a point I've never understood. That's a very uh, stupid, unnuanced history professor view of it. And he, and he later gets into time. And this is when it gets real interesting about how that the West look at time in the present only. Only think about the present moment. Yeah, th this goes back to sea-based and land-based civilizations. I'm not familiar with um, this. So I can maybe <clears throat> touch on this a little bit with uh, my geographical experience, but Russia historically has always been a land-based nation, whereas a lot of the nations in Western Europe were sea-based. Um, and so in a sea-based nation, you have this kind of geography that's based around these main... Um, primary cities that are located on the coast where a lot of the supplies can come in or trade can occur, whatever. And it feeds off into the hinterland, whereas Russia has historically, and even today still has an archipelago geography where you basically have some big cities kind of located in the land. So Moscow or St. Petersburg now, and everything else is really underdeveloped and kind of is dependent on it. And if I'm not mistaken, Dugan sees history as sort of like a perpetual conflict between sea-based and land-based societies um, with the most, uh, like the, the current iteration of that being Russia versus the United States and Western Europe. But I think he would, he would draw parallels to something like the conflict between the Roman empire and the, uh, the Parthian Persian empire as being this, this land-based versus sea-based conflict, uh, that continues throughout history. Well, this is something that even like Saint or not, uh, uh, Peter the Great, uh, when he founded St. Petersburg, uh, part of his intention there was to make Russia more sea-based yeah. because they had no access to basically warm water at that point. The great westernizer. Yes, of course. So, uh, And it's it's significant uh, as, as well here in this respect that uh, I, Plato, if you read Plato's like Phaedrus and, and Critias and um, what he's he's already hinting on this. I mean, even even esoterically in the opening chapter of Republic, he the first paragraph literally. I went down to the Piraeus, where they worship the weird gods. And then Piraeus is the port town of Athens, and a lot of people at that time thought the Piraeus was corrupting Athens because it was all this foreign influence coming in. It opened Athens up to being a sea-based uh, city um, because Athens was a bit off the coast. You know, it was a few it was a few um, maybe an hour walk to the sea. And uh, the Piraeus opened it up to all this foreign influence and all these ideas and poetry died and philosophy begins. And, and you can, I always said you could read Plato as an anti-philosopher in a certain sense, but, in, in, but the point I'm getting at is that for Plato, the Piraeus functions as the corruption, but also the Dionysian because it's, 
when it, there's only two dialogues where Socrates is outside of the city, um, in Phaedrus and then in that first part of the, of the Republic. And that's where Socrates is most insane. He's most Dionysian. And he, the whole reason the, the conversation Republic begins is because he goes down to Piraeus and he's basically intellectually raped into uh, having to have this conversation with Cephalus by his sons who basically say, if you don't you know, talk about philosophy, we're going to beat you up. And uh, so it's thug philosophy. And, and going into the Piraeus is where you enter the world of thug philosophy. It's where you enter to the world of degeneracy and degenerate philosophy. Um, and But for, for Plato, it also functions as a role of the um, continuation of Atlantis. And Atlantis was the prime uh, sea civilization and the prime influencer of dark magic and um, degeneracy among the world. And they were corrupt and relied too much on magic and advanced technology that we no longer know about or have access to. But, you know, some people say built the pyramids or whatever. In either case, um, Dugan kind of understands, and I, I totally agree with him, that America is the modern Atlantis. It's the modern continuation of the primary pharmacological, you know, in the sense of magic that we talked about in the other podcast, um, ruler that imperializes and spreads its disease to all the nations and that Russia is the only really strong land-based civilization left that can defend against the tyranny of the Atlanteans that are the, uh, the Americans. Yes, uh, Jonathan. It's interesting you brought up the topic of fascism and you cited some disagreements with Dugan on his uh, take on fascism. And since we're seeing this picture of Russia, of us wanting to see Russia as kind of this new, uh, it's kind of where I guess civilization is, where culture is probably meant to have its true meaning, whereas in America, uh, we can see, see it out for its degeneracy. Uh, Okay, so there's this emerging view as Russia is like this, you know, big thing. And uh, one German philosopher, uh, one of them being uh, uh, Hegel, he, is it correct to say that he saw this view of Germany becoming this um, nice cultural, I guess, bastion of values? Because Ivan Ilyin, he did grow, he grew up in Russia, but he did go to Germany to become a legal uh, scholar in Germany. But he, I don't think he planned on it, but he, he ended up becoming, uh, writing his uh, PhD on, it was on Hegel and it was called The Philosophy of God is Consciousness. And it's two parts you can find in the UK library. Um, but it's interesting seeing that uh, kind of a Russian, I guess, social nationalist thinker like Ilyin, he took a great deal of interest in Hegel, who saw the German nation as this great thing. And, but funny enough, uh, Ivan Ilyin, he got kicked out of Hitler's Germany for disagreeing with some of uh, Hitler's policies. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering, uh, I think I want to hear what some of critiques that Dugan may have of fascism, because I'm not aware. I don't, there are probably writings by Ilyin speaking of maybe some of his disagreements with fascism. But one, I guess, point of contention would maybe be is that Dugan and Ilyin, they both come from Orthodox Christian backgrounds, which I guess are very Eastern-minded uh, in, the, in the picture of Europe, whereas I, can't, I don't know whether or not that Orthodox mindset, that Slavophile mindset was properly understood in Germany at the time. So if I may real quick, I think it'd be good for the listeners, since we're kind of debating Dugan's position on fascism and whatnot, if we can kind of break down the four positions of politics that Dugan believes there to be 
Um, so if anyone wants to kind of start with that, so I think the be- first, the first, the first political theory is liberalism. It came out in this 18th century. Second political theory is communism, which of course came out in the 1920s. Third political theory is fascism, which came out as essentially just as a contrarian view of communism. And then he wants to create a fourth political theory by marrying all the good points of all three of those, along with traditionalism, along with some other geopolitical interests into a new theory. That's his thing, I think. This seems to be something that has very deep roots in Russian culture, namely in the the Slavophile movement of the 19th century. But even um, even before that, if we go back to Muscovite history in the 16th century, um, as we see the emergence of Russian identity, there's a strong messianic idea that goes along with the idea of, of holy Russia. Um, there's a very famous 16th century icon um, that I believe is is called Blessed is the Host of the Heavenly King. And it's supposed to simul- simultaneously depict uh, the triumph of uh, um, the Archangel Michael and the heavenly hosts over the, uh, the forces of hell and the triumph of Ivan the Terrible over Kazan. So there's a, a very strong association between the Russian state and the kingdom of heaven. And that's been something that's been constant throughout all Russian history. In the 19th century, uh, with the growth of Westernization in Russia, there's the, the reacti- reactionary movement of Slavophilism um, that basically saw a tradition, like the, the peasant Slavic tradition as being the answer to uh, Russia's problems and ultimately to the world's problems. I think it's in Brothers Karamazov in the, uh, the chapter that's, retelling Father Zosima's sort of preachings. He talks about how um, the, uh, the nihilists, the communists will, will soak the world in blood, but then it will be um, from the Russian peasants that the, the kingdom of heaven, if you will, will rise again and save not just Russia, but all the world along with it. And this seems to be sort of a, a deep influence in what Dugin is talking about, this messianic role of Russia um, as a as a counterbalance to the uh, the decadence of the West and uh, his other political foes, uh, it kind of it kind of reminds me of the uh, icon of Saint George with the tanks. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where he came into I think it was yeah. Egypt and he led the. It's like well, this you know what Saint George is going to do is going to take the fourth battalion of tanks and lead it to victory, <laughs> which I guess if any saint would be him. <laughs> Well, you know, about when you asked about Germany, Germany was well on that road. Germany was going to be the paradise. I mean, the Austro-Hungarian Empire married, you know, to the uh, the Prussians. I mean, it was, think about everything good that comes out of, let's say, the seven, 1650s to the really 1900. It's all German. The greatest, the greatest author past Shakespeare is Goethe. Every great composer comes out of Germany. All, you know, Heidegger, uh, you, you, Hegel, all Germany. Marx, it's all Germany. So there, there's a, they had a strong, and it was all Protestant. That, that's their whole thing, like Bach. I mean, it's all Protestantism. But the, they, that's a solid argument. I mean, well, they had great Catholic thinkers too, though. You no, know, they dumped, yeah. you really did. Yeah. But, you know, that it's, well, Martin Luther comes out of <laughs> Germany. I mean, like, it, it all yeah. comes out Ger- of Germany. Germany's kind of the source of all the problems of Europe in general, in my opinion. It's, it's almost like the, the axe. It, it kind of, it, it, it destroys. And it's, a, it's a double-headed axe. Yeah, yeah. So what, so fascism, his pro- so how he sees time is how time should be seen is a cycle of the, the present includes both the past 
and the future. And he talks about a song, right? You listen to a song, there's not one note that gets you. It's everything that led up to that one note and what you anticipate coming after that one note. So this it's an encompassing whole, this worldview. And I have two questions. Uh, I'll, I'll start with yours uh, the, the, about the about Germany and, and fascism. So his problem with fascism was it was completely it was just historical based, almost like um, a traditional thing. Like 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 they want to go back instead of looking at this view of time as being uh, you know present, future, and past. They just want to go back to the past. They want to revert back. Now to understand like this is one of my problems with with calling Nazis just racist and dropping it is understanding the context of why what happened happened. It's, it's very easy to understand. The German, Germans watched their Russian neighbors. If you think about before World War I, that would be their neighbors. They watched a bunch of peasants get led by some foreign Jews, essentially, who were brought in. Because And it goes back to um, Tolstoy, who's, who jokes in, in War and Peace that the peasants could never have an uprising, ever. And that's and Alexander Solzhenitsyn says the same thing. Like the, the peasants have no way of doing this. They have to be led by an, a a leader. So what they what they witnessed was they witnessed these Jews come into to Russia, take over, and literally do verbatim what the Protocols of Zion say they're going to do in the 1880s. Whether it's fake or that's real or if it's life emptying or I don't know. But they watched that happen verbatim. So then there's all these different wellsprings all through it in, in the Weimar Republic of of a communism. So the obvious answer is it's got to be the Jews that are starting this because they started it over there. Now, what's the one thing the Jews have always held on to? The only culture in the world that we are God's chosen people. We are special people. So how do you counter that? You say, no, we're special people because look, the, everybody knows the, the Romans like Caesar and Augustus and Tiberius and Alexander the Great and all these guys had blonde hair, blue eyes. So they were obviously from our land. So no, we're the greatest. So that that's that starts that dichotomy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, counter. So he he doesn't bring any of this up. And, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes in the third book of the Gulag Archipelago, which that book won the Nobel Prize, and it blows my mind. That it says this, but he says no one has put together the fact that a bunch of peasants were led by outsiders who hated the peasants, who hated our religion, that destroyed all of us. And these same groups of people and their lineage now own our media. And no one's put this together. Hitler writes in his second book, which is unpublished, which is just a political theory book. It's not, I mean, it's not controversial really at all, but in about, around page 50 or 60, he says something like, what happened in Russia was the fear that we lived with every single day. So when you understand that, you see it's not just blind racism. Like there, there is a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what he calls it. And there's a historical element and like a mythological almost element to this. Like it's not it doesn't come out of, you know, it's not a vacuum, like where it's just like all these guys suddenly decided to be racist. Like there, there was a, a reason. And you can say that how they responded to that was, was an overreaction, which is obvious. But I remember reading in 1929, they were said that the Jews were, had a great life in, in Berlin. Like everything was great. But, and I read, I read this rabbi saying that he left in 29 because he said he, he, he felt something moving under the surface that was bad. But he said it, you would have never known if you weren't paying attention to the intuitive sense of what was going on in the city. And so I think that that's one of my critiques on, on Dugan is that, and, but he also, he takes up Evel's position a lot. There's a lot to learn in, in tradition, but he's really scared. He's terrified of, a, of any culture trying to revert back to a past culture. Right. So I was going to say, I think Dugan might be playing this sort of esotericist card here though, that he's not actually telling you what he thinks. And he's telling you something to the effect to prevent 
um, an exoteric misinterpretation, bringing back this sort of naive, infantile return to something that was in the past, which Dugan, you know, just sees as even if it were achievable, not not the actual orientation of where one should go. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good point. Another question I have is about your all's land and sea thing. Yeah. There's a book called The Time Paradox by Philip Zimbardo. You know, he is, he did the big Stanford experiment, the prison experiment. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. He wrote this book called- I the, just wasn't familiar with Zimbardo part. Yeah, he, he wrote this book called The Time Paradox. It's a great book. It's very, I mean, it's not that great, actually. It's got some good points. It's like a typical academic book, you know, like it's just, I'm doing a, a masturbatory motion here. It's, <laughs> there, there, there's, there's, but there's a couple of high points in it. And one of the interesting high points he talks about is why cultures turned out differently. And if you look at geopolitically, they turn out differently exactly to where they are on the map. Yeah. So, so in the Northern Hemisphere, you have all this industrialization, this growth, growth, growth. The Southern Hemisphere, there's almost nothing. And this whole thing is because the Northern Hemisphere, they had a sense of time, they had a sense of history. Like, listen, we have to grow the crops right now. We've got to watch what we eat. We've got to save our food because winter's coming. And this is this fear that they live with every single year. And where the Southern Hemisphere never has to worry about that. So they never achieve anything because there's never any pressure on them. A bunch of lazy Sicilians. <laughs> well, yeah, no. So my question is though, is that what, is that kind of a, an analogy to the land and sea thing? I'd say that's along the same lines. Um, there's also this ancient understanding though, that um, culture and civilization came from the South though. So you have um, ancient Egypt, you have ancient Samaria, um, you have like the Kushite Empire and the Numidians and whatnot. Yeah. And the understanding is that that culture kind of traveled upwards towards eventually the Greeks. I don't think that's right. I would. Um, I think that's wrong. Well, that's the ancient interpretation, at least from... So this is like part of the understanding when uh, you have the Kushite king coming to King Solomon. Mm. Um, the significance of that is that the Kushites were typically viewed as, you know, more wise than the Northern kingdoms. And there's even this understanding that... Um, some of the like Northern gods came from like the Greek pantheons or whatever and mm-hmm. um, in some traditions. But I think as far as, you know, culture or tradition and civilization forming around locations, this is just evident globally. You can't really mm-hmm. refute this. Yeah. Um, and this is going to be based this, on- The soil is your fate. The soil is your fate, yeah. And so- Yeah. Yes, and, that's that's yeah. germs and steel, yeah. Yeah, and I know in Russia today, like there's- um, even people who, who hold strongly that they need to be buried in Russian soil. Um, there's people who will die in the U.S. and they'll have their family bring Russian soil over from Russia just to bury them over here because mm-hmm. it's too expensive to move their body back to Russia. But it's like there's something significant to that tie to the soil. And um, it's um, it's it's very deeply rooted, it seems like, in these civilizations. Yeah, I've, I've always said, uh, you know, moving around, I always come back to Lexington and I've always said, I want my body to feed the worms that tilled the soil, that grew the corn, that fed me. It's like I... I give my wife two options. I said, listen, if you don't do one of two options, I'm going to haunt you for eternity. You have two options. You can you can put me on a raft and send me down the river and catch me on fire. That's cool. Let the catfish eat me. Or you can dig a hole in the ground, throw my body in it and plant a white oak tree on top because of how the roots grow and put a note on there that says, if you cut this tree down, he will haunt you forever. That's, but <laughs> That's intense. I like that. There's no, there's no wooden box. There's no nothing. There's no stupid industrial fire. You have two options. I, I've always really respected the Mongolian burial practice. Because it's almost like where there is this respect for the soil that pervades pretty much every single culture in history with the exception of modernity. Um, the Mongolians transcended it to something like this idea of the air. And you know what they do is that they let your corpse rot and then they let vultures come and eat it. 
Uh, no, but that so it's cool. almost like on one hand, it's this Buddhist idea of dissolvement and non-attachment to the idea of the body. But it's also this idea that like the degree to which your body is related to the soil is actually more so in the air. It's in the sky. Well, isn't that what the Zoroastrians... With the fire. That yeah. For yeah, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, talking about fire, Dugan's little logo, uh-huh. the big the big flame, and there's yeah. a circle, then there's a phoenix on top. That's interesting. That's straight alchemy. Yeah. So that's a primordial fire, the desire burning, which the, the arrows, I'm assuming what he's getting at is an old ancient, I'm sure you know it, the idea that um, God is the point and the mother, you know, moves the point out in a line and then the sun turns it into a direction, to, a, to an Ouroboros. And it's written as, as when you look see it in our chemical text, it's often written like that, like a bunch of angles. Like it's it's like it's this width, length, height kind of thing. Like it's to create the whole matter. And then, so the f- primordial fire underneath the, the matter creates the higher fire, the Zoroastrian fire of the phoenix. Does that make sense? Sort of. Uh, <laughs> I think I'd have to see a diagram. Okay. Or well, a ritual sacrifice. It's on, it's on this, uh, the cover of his fourth political theory book. Every time I see it, I thought... In my head, it just looks like the Hunger Games logo for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know he's into, into mysticism, so you can kind of, you can take a bent that way immediately because uh-huh. he's, he's really yeah. big into it. But what well, I was saying about... So have you read that book, Sapiens? Uh, someone was Noah, just telling me about that book. That's it's, funny. That's, it, seems, yeah. it seems like very like materialist. Oh, 100%. What about nitwit. Couldn't agree more. Really? Okay. Which is hilarious because the book literally refutes in every element the out of Africa theory. That, that's, well, that's good. So it's like kind of woke Darwinism. Well, he's like, well, <laughs> he says like there's, there's, I think I can't remember, like maybe 18 different humanoids and how every, every, like the, I think only Neanderthals are only in the Europeans and the Asians and the Homo erectus and the something else or in the Africans and how they're completely unrelated. And Homo then, erectus, BTFO. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> And the Aborigines are the oldest, the closest to the original humanoids, which is- Yeah, they push back how far the Aborigines go every year, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. When I was in school, it was 100,000. People were saying now the Aborigines go back. They, they're estimating- Six the million thousand? So there you go. Well, it's interesting about the Aborigines. Was it Captain Cook that first discovered him? The guy was. who got cannibalized. I don't, I'm not sure. I think it was Cook. Well, he wrote a, this interesting <laughs> thesis on this that he, uh, he met the Aborigines and they could talk to one another hundreds of miles away and you could drop a child, Aboriginal child in the middle of the desert and they would find their way back home immediately. They got the dream time. But he said, as soon as we taught them our language, all of that stopped. They got messed up. This is a curious little little sidebar. Yeah, I, th- I haven't actually read Sapiens, but this is very interesting. I, uh, I tried to keep up with sort of, sort of the, um, the progress in the uh, paleontological anthropology that goes on in the scientific community. And it seems like every year, or maybe a couple times a year, we're unearthing some uh, fossil from a previously unknown hominid species, and we're beginning to realize how much of a mess our uh, our sort of genetic history actually is. How much more complicated it is than the the old idea of well, uh, we evolved in Africa and then migrated out about two hundred thousand years ago. There were there were multiple migrations out of Africa, different species of hominids dispersing around the globe and then intermingling. So it's a uh, uh, we, we're getting a lot more questions than answers at this point in the in the game in paleontology. Like a, like, it looks more like a Kentucky family reunion than it does some sort of like linear progression. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's like uh, Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions, but 
with the giant family tree instead. It's not, it's not this linear stacking upon one thing to another. It's all these sort of paradigm shifts happening simultaneously. Well, I got something interesting for you about, about what we were talking about the, the, where the species comes from. So the Etruscans were in the Italian peninsula, you know, yes. yeah. they, were, they were obviously foreign invaders. Then the Romans come down and there's a saying in, in the Etruscan language, like terror always comes from the North. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the ancient understanding is that you know chaos is in the north. Yeah, yeah. And the south has to come and tame it. Georgia come. Yeah. Well, so well, so then then you have later, so about about Caesar's time or um or maybe Sulla's time, you have a fear, they have a dread of the Gauls coming down because the Gauls would come down and from France and rape and pillage. Mm-hmm. So it's the same kind of fear. And then but if you look at I always find this fascinating. And it's, it's the Scythians, the Scythians in the you know, Bulgaria area. The, that's what Philip uh, II, Alexander's dad, was terrified of, was the Scythians coming down, you know, the terror from the north. But what I always find interesting is it all, it's always those people from the north, once they get to the south, that create the great civilizations. Because the Christians could have never created Rome, but it was the Germans that came down. They almost kind of intertwined with the, the Etruscans, or at least their climate, and they create the civilization. Then the, you think about the Germans create the great civilization. And you think about all these interesting things. But that's... I'm not, I'm not refuting that. I just think it's it's curious that it always happens like that. It's like the people from the North come down as barbarians, end up taking over, and they're the geniuses. Yeah, like, there's uh, a great Russian uh, political, well, often considered, uh, there's a great Russian, uh, I think he, he was the founder of the, one of the co-founders of the Slavophile movement, Alexei Komiakov. And the kind of thing that y'all have been getting at for a while is that in his philosophy of history, he makes a great distinction between Aryan and Kushites. Uh, Aryan, when it's, Translate if he's ever translated to English, you know the few paragraphs that do get translated. It's often rendered uh, Iranian, but the real words are Aryan. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in his Aryan in his uh, exposition on like you know what the Aryan is, it presents like the you know spirit. We're all aligned in spirit, whereas in the Kushite uh, part, use well it kind of it also it's kind of related to Oswald Spengler's uh, distinction between culture and civilization. Um, culture in this context is, would be associated with, you know, kind of building around the commune, being of the same spiritual mind, whereas on the Kushite side or civilization in uh, Spanglish terms is more related to, uh, you know, being dominated by matter, mechanization, where, and it's getting at, I guess, the perennial problem of how do we, how are we able to, you know, be of the right, matter and spirit are no longer aligned and after the fall, yeah. they are put together. Kabbalah likes to take this problem and put it one way, whereas the great traditionalist thinkers of old, uh, at least in the end, I guess, go toward the Christian ideal. Uh, Uh, Yeah, well, speaking on cultural intersectionality, Hava brought up this quote on Elin. Um, A number of Elin's works advocated fascism. Elin saw Hitler as a defender of civilization from Bolshevism and approved the way Hitler had, in his view, derived the anti-Semitism from the ideology of the Russian whites. So what was even more Northern than Germany came down and, and gave Russia the gift of uh, anti-Semitism from the gods. So <laughs> I think there was a little he wants to. This is very interesting because it, it gets to something that sort of lies at the, the, the basic foundational myth of Russia, um, which is the, um, well, the invitation by the, the Russian people, the peasants, uh, for the the Viking or Varangian uh, nobles to come and rule them, uh, 
so I, I can't remember in what century this was, but early Middle Ages, uh, Russia came to be ruled by the, this Varangian or, or Nordic ruling class, uh, the Rurikid dynasty. And in the primary chronicle, uh, there, there's a sort of mythic retelling of this story in which the, the Russian peasants send out messengers to the, the Viking lords and say that, I think it's something like our land is rich, but we are disordered. Come and rule us or something like that. Uh, so, it, right, they're, <laughs> they're simping for the Varangians. Um, but it's very interesting that this sort of uh, mythic idea continues from, from what you're describing, seems to continue to pervade Russian sort of political philosophy to this day. Does this get into Plato and the philosopher kings? Yes. <laughs> Everything goes back to Plato. All, ro all roads lead to uh, Athens. Um, yeah, well, you know, so Pla Plato's whole thing is that everybody's pretty much retarded. So we need philosopher kings to rule stuff. I mean, assuming you're reading this at a literal level. And uh, the problem is, is that a true king and a true philosopher does not want to rule. So Plato sort of pulls a 180 and says, the only slaves in the good society are the kings. Um, everyone else is pretty much free, but their desires have been so correctly oriented that their freedom leads to a natural production of what is good because they follow justice. And justice for Plato is minding your own business and not putting your nose in everybody else's. So anarcho-capitalism. Anarcho-capitalism. <laughs> uh, no, even, even more so, um, actually, I would say anarcho-monarchism, uh, sort of like in the tradition of Jünger or Confucius, which in Confucius saying that uh, the, the just ruler rules purely by te rules purely by virtue. He needs no need of force um, because his virtue exudes in such a way that when he dies, all the family say, I have ruled my kingdom well. I have ruled my family well. There is no credit given to the just ruler because he is such a good ruler of, of virtuous force that he goes entirely unnoticed. That's Egypt. Huh? It's, like, it's Egypt to a T. Yeah. That's exactly and, how they work. And, and so the idea is that the just ruler is basically anarchist. Um, and Jünger had a similar philosophy that the only true political theory in the Kali Yuga, that's not the word he would use, but um, is, is anarchism. But not anarchism in the sense of this active nihilistic no. path, but in the sense that um, the only virtue to work on in this world where there is no true political power or legitimacy of law. Um, if there are no kings, you can't have a connection to the divine of, of the law. There's only the, the law of God or the law of the gods. So the only thing you can work on is inner virtue. Um, politics is basically uh, chaos. There's there's no longer any permanence to it. Um, so we basically live in a always already anarchistic world. Um, if you want to run the red light, the only thing you're you're not breaking any tran transcendental law. You're just making yourself inconvenient. And so far, you might get pulled over by a cop and have to pay a fine. Yeah, you ever got an interesting <laughs> take on this? He he did he did I guess wish for hope for what you were just talking about with the Russians. He wished for a, a philosopher king worthy. And he talks about this openly, like, but he has this two different paths you can take if you're him, if you're a sub person like him. You can go in the woods with your family and just shut the world out and create your own world. Or you can live in the city, which is what he chose to do and to kind of be in the philosophical fight, you know, be in the, I forget what he called it, but you, you be in the, the big forest, I think is what he calls it, the the forest of uh, the city and in, in where there's more dangers than any forest in the world could ever Welcome produce. to the jungle. Exactly, yeah, yeah. 
No, this is interesting. It was like, so we talk about Terry in the North, one of the most fascinating bits in Caesar's um, bit on the Gallic Wars, which I, this is my, one of my favorite history books. It might be all bullshit. People think it's just him, you know, making himself look cool. But regardless, it's awesome because he makes all his bad guys. He makes, you know, people before him, all the guys that wrote before him, whether it's Sola, whether it's, um, you know, all of them, uh, uh, Scipio, they all made it sound like the Romans came in there and squashed them. Caesar doesn't. He's like, man, we barely got out of there with our lives. Every single battle, he's like, man, I don't know how we, we pulled that one off. But he makes an interesting comment about the Gauls. He says, man, if they, they're stronger than us, they're bigger than us, they're more attractive than us, the one thing they don't have that we have is discipline. And if they ever get disciplined, we are doomed. And I thought about that, you're talking about like about coming from the North. And like, that's, it's just something I've always thought about is that he was very well aware of what they were dealing with. Like these, these strong dudes, there was a funny story where he said, these people are so undisciplined in the middle of battle, they will turn and, and try to run away. And their wives had clubs and would beat them back into battle. He was just like, if these guys just had some courage and some discipline. That seems how chemical. Yeah, well, probably. <laughs> but <laughs> there's another interesting part in there where he sees a soldier teaching a slave, um, what are the two methods of learning they did back then? There was the seven pillars, it's what masonry is based on. It's like uh, arithmetic, geometry, I forget. Yeah, there's there's uh, the, the, the trivium and the quadrivium. Oh so yes, okay. He sees a, a general or a, one of his centurions teaching a, a slave this uh, these methods and he stops him. He says, if I ever see you do that again, I'll kill you. You're going to confuse this guy. He's never going to be able to figure this out. You're going to ruin his life. And at absolute worst, you're going to start a revolt in Rome. I thought that was interesting too. Like it's just how they viewed lower castes. Well, I mean, that's kind of what got Socrates in trouble too. He was teaching slave boys mathematics. Yeah. But he, he, didn't, have to, he didn't have to say much. He just had to draw lines in the sand and let them figure it out. <laughs> Probably the best way. Which was pretty revolutionary because it was this idea that knowledge was universal and it didn't actually need education as we tend to think about it it was something in the human soul that you had to be brought out, which is a very revolutionary philosophy of education that even to this day is, is repressed. Oh, 100%. Because you, you need to have the idea that we're, you know, this Rousseauian blank slate and we have to be civilized. And civilized change, what, what it means to be civilized changes from one culture to another. But it's always this idea of basically, you need to be propagandized to think like we do. And if you don't think like we do, you're an idiot and a, and a deviant. Well, that's Dugan's whole critique of liberalism. Well, it's that, like it's li spreading, liberalism definitely plays into it. It's spreading everywhere and it's destroying, like it's destroying America, it's destroying every single culture and, it touches. And it's kind of funny because if you talk to liberal philosophers of education, they very much see themselves as being against this. But it's always like, it, for one, they tend to be more like Emilie, like in, in Rousseau. They, they tend to see, to see man as like a blank slate and that they need to be cultured to think like a liberal. It's, ne it's never this idea that They'll, they'll give lip service to this idea that there's something inner in the soul that needs to be brought out and educated, lead out of the cave. But it's always lead out of a cave to fall into my propagandistic ideas. Yeah. Which is fine if you acknowledge it consciously. I have no problem. I don't think there is such thing as education that isn't propaganda. But, but to bullshit yourself into thinking that you're giving someone this idea of like leading them out of cave is always coincidentally just happens to fall into your particular belief system. A properly educated a properly educated person will always end up being a good liberal. Right. <laughs> I have a question for the Russian apologists here. I don't nothing about Russia. I mean, I, I've read Tolstoy. I've read uh, four or five of Dostoevsky's books. They're great. I love it. Tolstoy is, is not near as deep as Dostoevsky, but man, when he hits a home run, boy, he hits a home run. But my question is, do you think it's right? Do you think it's correct that 
our only salvation can come out of Russia. Um, <laughs> to put it simply, no, I don't. Um, but I do think that they were onto something uh, when they, they described salvation as coming from the people and from the land uh, rather than from any sort of system imposed from above. And this would apply to Russia, but also I think to any other cultural group. Um, although perhaps, um, you know, Russia's sort of uh, connection to Orthodox Christianity uh, gave them preeminence, certainly in Orthodox philosophers' minds. Although, of course, the Russian peasant wasn't all that pious in, in reality. But they were, they, were, they, were, they were a different type of pious. They were the, the piety of living life and, and zest, like the Italians or the French. Exactly. <laughs> they, they, they don't quite fit the um, idealized mold that Slavophilic authors sometimes uh, use to cast them in. Uh, but, but I do think that in as much as these people are talking about uh, the salvation of mankind is coming sort of from below and from within, uh, within the soul. I think that they are very correct. I, I, I do want to comment on this on this aspect with uh, Pascal and uh, Joseph de Mater, the French reactionary philosopher of rationated enlightenment, that they both make on a point that there's a meme going around nowadays that kind of personifies with the IQ curve. And it's like yeah. the people in the middle are the most retarded. And Pascal and de Mater say the same thing here, which is that... Um, there is this, they're, they're both Platonist in a way. So they have this respect of the philosopher's soul who's on, who's on the one extreme side. But they also say that the intellectuals, the academics are basically the dumbest people in society. And they're overeducated or what Kaczynski would say, over-socialized. And they have um, a myopic ability to understand how things actually are that the common uneducated peasant can understand much better. And that you should because philosophers are so real philosophers are so rare and inaccessible and they're probably like in a monastery and they never talk or something you're going to understand the wisdom of uh where spiritual salvation for a culture or a po political system comes from not from the academics um but from the peasants uh this reminds me a lot of well basically all of dostoevsky's novels but a particular example from uh his novel the demons uh his description or, or caricature of this uh, governor of the province who is a German immigrant uh, and who is obsessed with building miniature houses and miniature villages uh, of, or, or miniature like German houses, German churches. Uh, and his wife, who's Russian, is just terrified that the, the people will find out that he has this hobby. Um, and it's a critique of the Westernization, political Westernization of Russia. Um, I think there's a, there's a famous critique of Peter the Great saying that he wanted to turn Russia into Holland, which of course is sort of impossible. Uh, and as long as the government is focused on building these, these miniatures uh, with the, these soulless sort of copies, nothing is really going to happen. Uh, and I, I think that that is what Dostoevsky is trying to bring out with that caricature. I think it was Holland where he got crowned as a Freemason. <laughs> Peter? Uh, Peter was crowned as the Freemason in Holland. I think so. Goodness. Um, Calvin, how much time do we have left? We have about seven minutes. Okay. Well, I, I got another question for you, for you orthodoxy people. I'm not, I'm not orthodox. I was raised Pentecostal. I would call myself genuinely Evolian. I don't know. Uh, hermetic. Uh, you know, Hermetic's not a religion. It's, it's something you can put on a religion. I don't know. I, I don't really have a, a system. 
But so Ganon thought that the only hope for the masses was Islam, Sufism. Sufism, yeah. yeah in particular. And, and, and him and Evola both argued about this. Evola thought the only hope for the uneducated, never will be educated masses is Catholicism. That's, that's their only hope. And I always thought that was interesting because it's... Evola critiques Catholicism so much. Yes, though. he does. No, he does. I, I feel Evola was kind of ignorant of orthodoxy, though. Oh, I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was. I, I mean, going on and 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 Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff especially had a lot of respect for orthodoxy. Actually, that's all Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff yeah. with ortho, orthodoxy with Sufism mixed with some type of probably Tibetan Hindu. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> he spent some time in Tibet, but no one knows where. But it's a lot of it is orthodox. But my question is, so like, I, I would agree that it's impossible for most people. I'm just gonna sound so conceited, but to follow the kind of the path I'm on, where mm-hmm. I have no, I have no ruling guide other than my intuition, and I, I read a book, I have to bullshit, put it down. Read another book, I read Orthodox books, I read pagan books, I read, I mean, whatever I, I whatever I intuit could yeah. be possibly correct is what I, I go with typically, and from my, you know, it's my own understanding of these works. But I often wonder, like my children, I should probably have them in a church because it, it's like you know let's say they, they don't follow my path, which is fine. They need some type of background, something that they need some type of religious system yeah. and everyone would, everyone should. So do you think orthodoxy? Would- I mean, that that's where I am. I talked about this in the first episode of the podcast, but it's like, I'm not really genuinely religious at all, but I, I'm, I'm a Platonist. But if I ask myself, where is the most organized Platonism? It's without question, at least in the West, orthodoxy. And, and in the Orthodox church and the theology and the philosophy and the sacraments and the, the organization of the, the, the things that happen 99% in orthodoxy are unconscious. What it's doing to you without your understanding. And what it's doing you is basically preparing you noetically, spiritually, physically, through fasting and prayer to receive um, noetic enlightenment in, mm-hmm. in the Platonic tradition, um, theosis. Uh, theurgy, whatever word you want to use. And I think from a perennial point of view, that's just universal to all religions. The problem is that there really is no religion that has a continuity with its original. I mean, what, so Seraphim Rose talks about when he was trained by um, a Zen Buddhist master in California, this guy told him that my tradition is dead. Communism wiped it out. I'm one of, if not the last person who has a continuing tradition. And Rose's question was, well, you know, there's text of Confucianism, there's text of all this stuff. And, he's, and, he, and he, his master told him something that stayed with Rose and I totally agree with. He's like, the continuity of tradition is not in a text. And I think Protestantism is the best case uh, study for this. You can't just pick up a text and understand what a religion teaches because yeah. what a religion teaches is in the hearts and that has to be given orally through sacraments and traditions and ritual and liturgy. If you just read a book, you're going to get all sorts of different interpretations. You have to have a oral confessional culture that brings about a continuity. And the problem, according to the Zen master, was that communism wiped that out in China. It's totally artificial now. Um, it's like new age or whatever. So the only way, the, for Seraphim Rose, what, what he gathered from this is that there's really only two legitimate traditions left in the world, which is um, Sufism, Orthodoxy. But Sufism is, is obscure and it doesn't seem very accessible in the West. Uh, yeah, I would say that's true. That's that's absolutely true. I mean, and then it, with the orthodoxy, it's. I think you're exactly right. It does things to the unconscious. All the all those the the you know the the different sacraments and all that jazz. But yeah, it's it's something I think about all the time. Like like if people come to me that I think there's no way you're gonna have any interest in all these hermetic books. I've spent years trying to figure out. Like I. I I guess you're right. The only option would be orthodoxy. Like, and, and if nothing else, orthodoxy will prepare them to understand and receive those texts as well. 
Yeah, no, for sure. So I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast per se, but when we did our Dante class about a year ago or whatever, one of the big things that we discussed was like, what is real beauty? And how can you like, especially direct those who are looking for it or may not know what it is towards it. And so kind of tying everything together that we've talked about today, um, the conclusion we kind of came to was that um, when you find the truth, when you find beauty, um, if you're exposing others to that, if you're sharing that with others, your children or whatnot, when they get to the point where they make their own decision about where they're going, they're going to be able to identify, even if they don't fully understand it, they're going to be able to differentiate that beauty from the crap. Educating Eros. Yes, educating Eros. And so I think that's um, kind of key in mm. orthodoxy. You have to give your kids a Beatrice. Yes. That's the name of my fourth kid. I named her after Beatrice? that Beatrice. Yeah, I named her after that Beatrice. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Closing question. This isn't like part of the full discussion, just general curiosity. Uh, when you plan on having that conversation with your kids about where babies come from, are you going to tell them about semen retention? Yes. Okay. No, when they get, no, when they get, no, I'll explain why. No, I'll tell you exactly why. Because in all these texts, they, they like this, at least in the older texts, they, they like to start with a younger man. And that's what the Jesuits saying about, give me a seven-year-old boy, I'll show you a true man. Then they like to, to teach this in them early. Like, don't sleep around. Whatever you do, do not masturbate. And, you know, and, then, and same with the women. Like, you know, that's one thing I've noticed this is going to sound maybe too personal. But in my own semen retention, I've gotten more and more like masculine, like testosterone is starting raging in me. And I have to retrain it. You know, it's like I'm a teenager again. Like I'm going to fight everybody, you know? And <laughs> so I'm third. Yeah, yeah, Dragon's always knocking at the door. <laughs> but, but so I would like my, my daughters to, to want to be with a man that would be willing at the very least to save themselves for her and explain to them the beauty of it and the, and the power of the virgin. Evel talks about this a lot. Like the, there's more power in a virgin than any other of any sex like that. And a virgin woman is where all the power is. And the second she's no longer a virgin, that power is gone. So it has to be saved for a very special particular moment. So I was, I, yeah. You know, and, and think about like one of the greatest things about re being raised in a Pentecostal church is you have to memorize the literal Bible back and forth. I mean, it, I still remember so many verses, the Bible quiz. And that might sound horrible to you, but now that I've grown, it's awesome. Cause I can just recall verses, you know, like, so it, it's kind of a good background. Maybe they might all be full of shit, but still I know all the verses. Like I, I know the Bible back and forth and, and I know what the literal interpretation is. And I remember the, 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 some of the interpretations, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense at all. And so you kind of put things together when you get older. So I don't regret it at all, you know. Well, because you were shown that at a young age, you yeah. know, you're able to interpret now and go, oh yeah, this is good. This is bad. This is real. This is, this doesn't but make any sense. But a lot of people aren't. I mean, the, yeah. one of the kids I grew up with the same age as me is the new pastor of that Pentecostal church I grew up in. His dad was a pastor of. And, the, and it's still filled with the same people that are in my youth group, you know, so. We're, we are at the 50 minutes. Uh, this this was our podcast on ostensibly uh, Yvonne Ilian, and I hope I hope you enjoyed uh, being passively psychoanalyzed by our uh, uh, Menderbund discussion here. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>